Thank you. Thanks, boss. I mean, Ross. <laughs> Sorry, it's just a long-standing joke between Ross and I. Um, good evening, everyone. How are you guys doing? Why is this thing sticking on you? Um, I'm doing well, thank you for asking. Uh, but today, I really get to close out our Observer series. And uh, the reason that we call it that is because we're looking at the Easter story from three different perspectives. And did I get to look at the Easter story from the disciples' perspective? Um, but before I even get started, there, are, if you hear the last time I was preaching, there are a few things that you're allowed to say. And tonight I feel like not making it a joke, um, but making it really serious. Because there's power in the things that come out of our mouths. So when I really preach, I encourage people to speak, I encourage you to say amen, I encourage you to say preach it. Because what happens in those moments is you're declaring stuff over your own life. Because when you say amen, what you're really saying is let it be so with me. So over the course of my preach, if you're feeling like that's what you want to do, do it. It's okay. You're speaking life over circumstance. You're speaking life over um, a situation. You're speaking life over a family member. It's okay to speak in church while the preacher is preaching. Um, so I encourage you, feel free to give me some feedback. It won't scare me. Um, so my title for today's sermon is called, It's Finished, But It's Not Over. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where things have looked like they're, they're reaching it, their end, and then out of nowhere, suddenly, uh, something shifts and then they get resurrected, or things are redeemed, or things start to look brighter. Um, so I, was, I scoured the internet to look for videos where this almost happened, uh, or this did happen. Um, so why don't you look at the screen quickly, and if there's no video sound, I'll just run commentary for you. It's finished, however. <laughs> it's not over. Finishes the race. Let's go. Finished. It's not over. <laughs> I love this. This I don't know how this dog didn't die. And then this is a big dog, but a motorcycle hits the back of the car. He does a flip and lands on the car. Scandalous. Um, but there's a moment in history where a group of 11 guys fought this way. I want to read you probably one of the most iconic scriptures in all of the Bible that highlights this statement, it is finished. So let's look at John chapter 19, verse 28 uh, to 30. And it says this. Jesus knew that his mission was not finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it in our, on our high soap branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now let's imagine for a second that the disciples, the people that, are, that had been following this person for the past three years, get to hear this so in murmurs or rumors, because they're scattered here and there. Um, I think John is the only one really that was still at Jesus' feet at that moment. But they hear that 
their Messiah, their individual, their person was dead. What do you begin to feel in that moment? What do you begin to do in that moment? What do you begin to think in that moment? Now we can imagine and exercise a little bit of poetic license that they're somewhat fearful, somewhat doubtful, somewhat disappointed at the fact that uh, they've, they've let this person down. The past three years have become a blur because of one incident, one moment in history that shook all of history. Jesus utters his last words, surrenders his life for the sake of all creation, including them, and they're not there. Peter, somewhere in the corner, feeling ashamed and disappointed at what had happened, him denying Jesus three times, and he kind of even began to try and collect himself. I don't know about you, but for me, there have been situations in my own life where um, I've been in the disciples' shoes. Man, this person, this great individual, Jesus, I've put my faith in him, trusting him for a specific situation, a specific breakthrough. But when that doesn't happen, my natural result, my natural instinct is to go back to what I know. Well, if God won't, then I will. If God doesn't begin to do something in this, when it looks like the story is over, then I'll take things into my own hands. The most unreliable individual between the two of us. Man, it's, it's ridiculous, but we do it. I'd like to believe I'm not the only one in this room that has had that happen to them, where we begin to trust ourselves over trusting God. Where just because things aren't looking the way that we want them to look, we begin to take things into our hands. We begin to strive, begin to exercise our own capacity, our own power that's so limited. Because the disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, they went back to what they knew which was fishing. Well, if the story is over, then I might as well just do what I know. If the story is over, I might as well just take stuff into my own hands. If the story is over, I might as well just give up. Now, we know this now, but back then, they saw half the picture. They saw half the story. Because it might have looked like it was over, but actually, it was finished. His work was finished, but theirs was only just about to begin. So let's carry on reading and find out what happens um, on the third day. And we know that he, he rises, but just follow with me. <laughs> so Luke 24, uh, verse 1 to 12. So before this has happened, all the disciples are together in a room, trying to deliberate, decide, okay, cool, what, what do we do from here? Where do we go from here? So the women walk off to go tend to Jesus' body as they have been for the past couple of days, um, and then this is what they find. But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance, so they went in but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. The women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, um, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here, he's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the son of man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. 
Then they remembered uh, that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was, a, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, James uh, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to them, so they didn't believe it. However, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb. Stooping, he peered in and saw, that the, and saw the empty linen wrappings. So he went home again, wondering what had happened. So different versions tell us that those two men were angels. Uh, and right after they say this to Mary and the company of women, as they turn around, Jesus appears. So now we've got to ask ourselves, if the disciples are in a room together trying to figure out what to do next, why doesn't Jesus appear there first? Why does he appear to Mary and uh, all the women first? Because I mean, it would make sense to appear to the people that needed you the most um, and were supposed to take the church into the next season first. I believe, and you could believe this as well, that um, there is something about what happened in that moment of the woman turning and going that moved the heart of God. Because see, when the, when the angel said, why are you looking for him here? He's, he's risen. They didn't debate. They didn't argue. They didn't try to uh, see if what they're saying was fact. They simply believed, turned around, and left. There is something of faith that moves the heart of Jesus. Of all the people, they were the first to believe. So he appears to them first. Now, something is clanking over there. (laughs) Um, uh, I just lost my train of thought. Now, you might... Uh, ask yourself, why does Jesus appear to the woman, yes, they had faith, but women in that time were somewhere just above slaves. So their opinions, their views, their thoughts were not wanted. So you can imagine if the women were giving a report of a risen savior, it would be regarded as not truth. But he still does it to them anyway. He still appears to them first anyway. Because if we, we can imagine that if these women give a a report, what is that? It's actually really... Um, if, this, <laughs> um, if these women give this report to the disciples, the only possible reason that they would say what they're saying is that it must be true. Because if they just walk around saying, oh, Jesus has risen, it would be the most insensitive thing for them to say at that time. If Jesus was absolutely who he said that he was. So if... He appears to them and does exactly, um, and stirs up faith in their hearts and says, hey, go tell the others that I have risen. And their response is, great, let's, let's go do that. And they give that report. If I was a disciple, I would be like, uh, in the time that we live now, if they're saying this, then it must be true. But obviously, as men do, they don't believe the woman. So I want to take a moment to pause and speak to the men in the <laughs> Speak to the men in the room. Listen to your women. They're far wiser than you think. Um, but even after hearing this, in its uh, perplexity, um, Willie's water moment there, um, they, still do, <laughs> they still don't believe. 
So then a couple of the disciples are on their way, en route to a, a place called Imus, Imus, some, something, um, Imas, Emmaus, there we go. Um, and uh, Jesus appears to them as well. But he doesn't say, ah, I'm alive. Um, <laughs> what he does is, <laughs> what he does is he asks them a question. What's going on? And he walks a seven mile journey with them, trying to understand where they're at, trying to get a sense of their heart. Because you can imagine that the disciples' spirit was pretty downcast, it was pretty disappointed, it was pretty sad, it was pretty gloomy, all of them. But before the work that he has for them begins, he has to work on the condition of their spirit. So he starts appearing to them one after the other. So he walks a seven mile journey with these two, talking to them, trying to understand, trying to uh, meet them exactly where they are. And when they get to where they're going, he pretends to walk on and they're like, wait, wait, it's late, come over for dinner. Jesus is like, cool, all right, I'll, I'll sit down, have dinner with you guys. Gets in, has dinner, and as he breaks bread, their eyes are opened and he disappears. What is happening in that seven mile journey? So they obviously, when that happens, they're like, this is Jesus. They get up and hightail it back to the other disciples uh, to go give them the good news. And on the way, they're like, well, didn't our hearts burn within us as we were uh, walking, with this, walking with them? I think that in that seven-mile journey, there's obviously a relationship that's built and reestablished with the disciples. But also, if you stop and think, the things that we come to believe don't happen in a moment. They happen over a process. So if I was to tell you that the Bulls are the best team in the country right now, South African team in the, right now, you wouldn't believe me. That's lies. What you'd have to do is watch the game, see how they play, look at the stats, and you'll obviously conclude what it's saying is true because the evidence is there. What I am saying is actually true. The Bulls are the best team in the country, I think. It's called an obstacle. You overcome it. Um, <laughs> but the, over that process, he begins to shape what they come to believe. And over that process, he reestablishes a relationship with them. And when that happens, revelation comes. And when their eyes are open, they cannot help but share what they have. So then they hightail it back to the other disciples and um, Jesus begins to now appear to all the others as well. Peter, uh, Thomas, uh, the others. <laughs> um, but the important one is Peter. Because what he does is he reinstates him. We can imagine Peter, the person that just has stuff running out of his mouth, is feeling somewhat despondent. And Jesus says, no, don't worry about what you have to say to me. Do you love me? Then build my church. Oh, yeah, 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 but, but God, no, no, no. Do you love me? then shepherd my sheep. He's reinstating him into uh, his heavenly glory. He's reminding him of the condition or of the posture of his spirit. Yeah, you were Simon, but you're Peter now. Yeah, you may have been a reed, but you're a rock that I'll build my church on now. He does this for 40 odd days, and still they don't believe You've got to wonder, what is going on in the disciples' says that they, after all this evidence, still don't believe? So he just appears to them all together in a room. I'm going to look at that scripture now. In Luke 24, 
uh, verse 36 to 49. It says this, um, and just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me. Make sure that I'm not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies, as you can see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Stop and envision that moment for a second. There's Jesus in his fullness, in your presence, showing you the evidence of his existence, of his uh, risenness. <laughs> um, and yet you still struggle to believe. And yet you still struggle to accept the fact that he is risen. He is exactly who he said he was. Now, we can say this now, that they were idiots. However, there's something that God wants to do in them that happens in the next little while. So let's, let's read it together. Uh, now then he asked, do you have anything here to eat? Now, I don't think that Jesus was really hungry in that moment. Because he's restored to his former glory, his heavenly stature or posture. But it, if you remember, just before he died, he took communion with them. He broke bread. When he appeared to the first two that were on their way to that location, as he broke bread, they remembered. When he breaks bread with them, what he's trying to do is recreate that moment. What did you feel when we had supper together? What did you uh, sense? What is the atmosphere in the room? Does not your heart long to take communion with me consistently? Uh, so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is my favorite portion of scripture in this, in this verse. I mean, the verse in the portion of scripture. And then he opened their, their, their minds to understand the scriptures. Who are the scriptures about? Him. He is scripture. So really what he's doing in, their, in that moment, he's opening their minds to understand exactly who he is. So what might have felt like the story was over, in that moment they understand that actually the work, his work, was finished. The work that he came to accomplish was finished. Yeah, we only saw the story in part, but when he opens their minds, they get a bigger picture. That this thing is far bigger than where you are right now. But it needs you. He opens their mind to the uh, fullness of what he's calling to them next. Calling them to next. Because after that moment, he gives them a mandate. He gives them a mission. He's been compassionate enough and, wallowed and walked them through their wallowing and their doubt and their lack of belief. But now, it's time to work. His work was finished, but their work was about to begin. It may have felt like it was over, but actually it was finished. But the work is not yet over. So he gives them the mandate that most of us know in this room. Um, 
And he said this, and he said, Yes, it is written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of all sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. He gives them a mandate, and he says he'll send a helper to help them achieve that mandate. Because after that moment, he ascends to heaven. They go off to Jerusalem. They uh, instead, Matthias is the 12th disciple, and uh, they're in a room praying, praising. The Holy Spirit comes upon them like tongues of fire from heaven. They begin to speak in foreign tongues, and you can imagine that the people around them start hearing that uh, these Jewish guys are speaking in their language, so they go and investigate this. Peter, it's opportunity. Peter, the rock that Christ is going to build his church on, takes his opportunity, stands up, addresses the crowd. He preaches to the crowd. 3,000 people are saved. In one moment, one in 12 individuals. That mission, that mandate, wasn't just for them. It was for us as well. It might have been given 2,000 years ago, but it's still relevant for us today, I'd say more so than ever before. There is work specifically for you to do on this earth. And I don't know what the condition of your spirit is this evening, but I want to tell you that you are absolutely righteous. Sin, depression, anxiety, negative words that were spoken over you in light of what Christ has done for you, Carry no weight. And I'm not trying to make light of um, some of the stuff that has happened to you. Absolutely not. But what God has done for you is far bigger than what people have done to you. And if we let that sink in, I, I, I don't know if we've ever really let this idea sink in that you are righteous. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that he died for all sin once for all time. This abounds to you as well. This is for you as well. You might feel like uh, your calling might be too big. You might feel like you're not ready. The disciples probably felt the same. It's okay. Just take one faith step. Just one. However small, however ridiculous it might seem. Just one. Our work isn't over yet. If uh, the power of the gospel is exactly what what it is, then we can't keep this message to ourselves. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. If good news is still good, then how can we not share it? And I'm not trying to like manipulate your emotions to walk onto the streets and start pointing at people like Jesus loves you. Um, Not at all. There's a way to do it that doesn't weird people out. There's a way to do it that is healthy and constructive. And I believe that Jesus gives us that blueprint is to walk seven miles with people. Our responsibility is relationship. His responsibility is revelation. But this part needs you. The next part needs you. 
There are seats that are empty in this church. If seats really do tell stories, then there are stories missing from our church. And you are part of the process of getting those people in here. You are part of the process of getting the gospel to them out there. It's, it seems like a, a scary thing. And yeah, it is. But man, if the gospel did what it did for you, how, how can you not just run to the next person like I have a story to tell you? Because see, when Peter got up and addressed the 3,000, there was nothing special about how he was saying it or what he was saying. He simply told a story. Let me tell you about a man who came to die for you. Where you're sitting, your seat has your story. All we've got to do is tell stories, build relationship with people, and watch revelation come, person after person. This next part needs you. And yeah, it's far bigger than you, absolutely. But this next part needs you. I want you to imagine for a second, if the disciples had yeah, heard Jesus and still at that moment not believed and stayed in Galilee, would we all be sitting here today? Now we'd like to believe that God is far bigger than people's mistakes and he would have orchestrated something that moves the gospel forward. But the best people to tell that story are the people that experience that gospel. So he turns the disciples into witnesses. And all they do for the next 2,000 years is tell, well, the next few years, they want to lie for 2,000 years. Um, but really, over the next 2,000 years, the gospel moves from person to person through stories. This thing of sharing the gospel shouldn't be weird, shouldn't be counterproductive, shouldn't be, uh, oh, you know, you should, those Christianese oaks, eh? <laughs> it really just should be storytelling. Because if you think about what the gospel has done for you, it was a story. It was a series of moments where God began to change you. And it still is changing you. If you're waiting for a moment where you're going to be ready for this, I'm waiting for two, 20 years from now when I have the right platform, that platform might never come. If you're waiting for a moment, that moment might never come. But there are people in your life right now that you can reach. You're in a workspace, you're in a university, you're in a um, church environment where you can speak life into people, where the gospel can move beyond you in people's lives. Your work isn't yet over. It is finished, but it's not over. I know of a, of a preacher in America who has a four-time cancer survivor in his church. Think about that for a second. Four-time cancer survivor. Now, I can imagine that this lady probably felt like the devil is after her. But she decided to turn her prison into a platform. Well, if I'm going to be going to chemotherapy, then I'm going to take the gospel with me. And she began to tell stories to the ladies in her chemotherapy room and the guys in her chemotherapy room. And one by one, they began to start coming to church. They got saved. One lady who chose to take her prison and use it as a platform. 
or a couple in, in Cape Town um, that three months into marriage felt called to move to Western Zambia, where uh, it's probably the most impoverished part of the country. They moved to Western Zambia and they started a uh, thing called the Zambia Project that feeds orphans, looks after moms that are HIV positive. They get them plugged into uh, some form of work that gives them money to look after their homes. They have missionaries coming from all across the world. Obviously, this is over 10 years. All across the world, they go off into villages to preach the gospel because people are living in spiritual, spiritual darkness in that area and really in all areas. They started planting water wells because people in Western Zambia don't have clean and safe drinking water. Children don't live, three out of, the five, out of five children don't live past their fifth birthday because of malnutrition. They saw a need, so they went. The power of the gospel worked within them, so they went. Kristen Kane started A21 to fight against human trafficking. And I would like to believe that it's her uh, goodness or whatever, but I'd like to believe that it's the gospel working within her. Brian and Bobby Houston, who understand this incredible concept that the local church is the hope of the world, started a church in a garage some 30 years ago, and now Hillsong is this massive dynasty because they really believe that if there's a church within walking distance from everyone across the world, then we can change the world. Craig Grishel, uh, who started the version Bible app, it's not, I don't think, like 50-something languages. The power of the gospel working in individuals. And I can tell you story after story about person after person who understands the, the magnitude of this mandate. So they just go, now, your going might not take you to Saudi Arabia or, or China or the Middle East. Your going might simply be walking to your neighbor and say, hey, would you like to come over for dinner? The next time you're in a coffee shop, ask the person's name. Hey, how are you? What's your name? How did you get here? Build relationships with people that are around you. But can we go? Wherever that going might take you, can we go? Then we get Sarah who prays the prayer. God, use me where you want to use me. Our hearts open to being used as vessels, wherever that, that might be. That needs to be the posture of our spirits. God, wherever you send me, I'll go. Because we understand the power of the gospel within us and what that can do for somebody else. Now I'm going to invite Justy up, um, and I want us to do something quickly. And maybe you've been sitting here and there have been people uh, popping up in your head, uh, person after person, or maybe there's one thing that you feel you want to start doing. So I'm going to institute a Holy Spirit moment. We pray for boldness, pray for courage, pray for bravery, uh, pray that He opens our eyes to see people. So you can close your eyes for a second. Um, you can bow your heads if you feel comfortable. I'm going to ask you a few rhetorical questions that I want you to think about. What has the gospel been or done for you? Because what we believe about Jesus shapes the rest of our beliefs, the rest of our actions, the rest of the things that we come to do. So what has the gospel done for you? 
It's done more than make you a good person. It's made you alive in Christ. It's made you righteous. And those people that you might have on your heart, think on them quickly. Who are they? What's the first thing that you can do to move the relationship forward? Is it a hello? Is it a dinner? Is it a conversation? What's one thing that you can do? Just one. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you came and you died on the cross for us. As much as we try, we can never really fully understand the gravity of that moment, but our hearts are filled with gratitude. Man, I pray that we never forget that we are righteous. Completely and utterly righteous in your eyes. The work on the cross was finished some 2,000 years ago. But man, there's something that you want us to do. Somewhere where you want us to go. People that you need us to build a relationship with. To walk a seven mile journey with. Won't you begin to reveal those people to us? Won't you send your Holy Spirit into our hearts? Open our eyes, Jesus. And if we're here this evening and we don't really know who this Jesus person is, man, won't we pray a brave prayer? God, if you're real, won't you reveal, reveal yourself to me? Won't you begin to speak to people ever clearly this evening, Jesus? Give them a spirit of courage that they, if the step is just small, then they should take it. The gospel really is meant to be shared. Why don't you help us to be brave in how we share it? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Seeds tell stories. So go tell yours. Thank you. Ross is going to come up real quick. Isn't he cool? Guys, uh, uh, there's a similar message preached this morning, and um, whilst like I was preaching, I, I remembered something. I remembered a teenager that got dragged to a youth camp, and uh, you could tell this kid didn't want to be there. Not he, everything in him wanted to leave the room, and uh, and so his mate drags him up to chat to me, and I, and I talked for I don't know three four minutes, and I preached the gospel to him. But I was going, this oak is hating every second. I'm hating every second. This is like, I can't make him receive this. I'm doing my best. I'd like almost given up. And I, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to pray. I prayed for him. He went and sat down. We went into worship. And then I saw him weeping and weeping and weeping at the back. As God touched his heart. And here's what I realized. You can never lead someone to Christ yourself. You need the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, He anoints two things. He anoints the message, what we speak, and He anoints us. And to have such a great message and not 
have the power of the Holy Spirit come on you would just be a waste. So I, if this is going to freak you out, don't stress too much. Just watch the other people. But, uh, but what I want to do is pray for people who want the Holy Spirit to come on them and give them boldness. Okay, now I want to give you a secret about boldness. Boldness doesn't kick in until your mouth starts. So, so everyone goes, give me boldness so that I can get the courage to. No, no. You have to get the courage to and, and then you'll feel boldness. It's like putting your foot in the gas. It kicks you into gear. But I want to pray for people who want boldness. Because what will happen is once you've got boldness, you will have that conversation with the teenager and God will anoint the message and he will do the work and you will stop having to take responsibility for trying to convince your brother or your father or your sister or your friend. God will do it. So if you want boldness to come upon you, why don't you stand? I want to pray for people. Some people just shot up. Some are hungrier than others. Just know this. When you ask Jesus into your life, the Holy Spirit comes inside like a trickle. When you ask Him to fill you, Scripture says, He is hungry or thirsty. Ask of me and I will fill you. That's what Jesus says. When you ask, He'll fill you and it's like a river. But when you ask Him to come upon you, that's power. And that's what we're praying for tonight. We're asking God to come upon us for power that when we speak to people, their lives change. You get it? So if that's what you want, open your hands. And so God's going to give you a gift. And now I want you to say this, Jesus, please come upon me with power through your Holy Spirit. And Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you'll touch people throughout this room, that they'll start to experience the anointing, that they will speak and power will come out, Lord, that they will watch you move. Jesus, I thank you that you will anoint people throughout this room. God, that you'll anoint their words, that you'll give them so much courage. I thank you, God, that people will literally be changed. I pray, Father, that you change people. Holy Spirit, come upon that man. Lord God, just come upon people. Move across this room. Some of you, I actually feel like there's some very shy people here who God's going to use radically. You're going to be amazed. You're going to start going, man, they got saved, and then that person got saved, and that person got saved, because power came upon you. So, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you will come upon people throughout this room with power. Now, I want to say this. Some of you will be feeling the presence of God right now. Some of you will not be feeling anything, but you will speak and you'll see stuff change.